Hey friends, welcome back to the Heretics Club. I'm your host, Amanda Steed, and this episode, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Tommy Allgood back in the summer of 2019. I want to take a second out to acknowledge the fact that it has been an entire year since you heard from me. And initially, I was going to record a whole episode dedicated to explaining kind of what's been going on for me, why you haven't heard from me, why it took so long for me to get back into these episodes. But then I realized that I don't actually have to do that. And I don't mean that in like a way that I don't respect the fact that you're giving your time to listen to this podcast. I just know that the community that we've built here and kind of the values that I hold in these conversations, there's a community where... I know I'll be welcomed back and you guys can trust that I took a year off because I needed a year off. So I'm just going to leave it at that. And I want to express my immense gratitude that you're still here. You're still subscribed. You're still listening and tell you that I'm really excited to be back and continue to share these conversations with you. Over the next few episodes, I am jumping back into conversations I had in the first few months of 2019. But I do want to share that I have a slightly different vision for how the podcast will continue beyond those initial conversations. My heart is to create a space where we can continue to explore our spirituality together. But honestly, I am not entirely sure what that looks like yet. So I just want to share that I'm creating some intentional space to think about that over the next few weeks. And obviously, I'll share that with you when I have a better idea. So back to my conversation with Tommy, I know that you're going to love this episode and it's a longer episode, but I just decided to give you all of it at once because I enjoyed listening back to it so much. We chat about Tommy's experience growing up in the church of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, how his parents were from different religious and spiritual backgrounds and kind of how that played out in his house and how learning to love himself and embrace his sexuality meant letting go of a lot of the traditions that he was handed. One thing I really respect about Tommy is his ability to hold his experiences with non-judgment, even the parts that were harmful and created pain. This conversation does dive into sexual abuse, we talk about trauma a little bit, and we dive into mental health issues. So if those subjects are triggering for you, please make sure that you create the space to process it with someone that you trust after listening. As always, you can connect with all of our guests on Instagram by checking out The Heretics Club, and you can ask your questions and thank them for sharing their stories. Enjoy the conversation. I'm looking forward to reconnecting with you in this space. All right, Thomas Garvin, AKA Tommy Allgood, welcome to the Heretics Club. So good to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so let's start out by uh, giving you some space to introduce yourself to my listeners. Tell them what they need to know about you. Hey, uh, so yeah, my name's Thomas. Um, I go by either that or Tommy. Um, a lot of people are surprised to know that like my real name is not Tommy Allgood, <laughs> uh, especially <laughs> if they meet me on, in the online space, which I always find quite entertaining. And we were just talking and we were like, wait, if you say Tommy Garvin, that doesn't sound right. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I was like, which which name should I introduce you by? 
So I was like, I guess it does matter a little bit, but th thank you for uh, uh, opening my eyes to like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so this will be really interesting because I do really well with like questions, but um, just, I guess I'll give you a little synopsis of kind of who I am and what I do. Um, I am Thomas Garvin. I go by also Tommy Allgood, which is my business moniker for coaching, consulting, all things um, conversational and, and total wellness in nature. Um, I am a nurse. I've been a nurse for uh, three years now. And before that, I was a surgical assistant. So I've been in the healthcare industry for about eight years. Um, and then I, um, I got into coaching just because um, I'm a little disenfranchised by our current healthcare system. And uh, we're very reactionary. And I wanted to... Um, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease in my senior year of high school. And that just kind of sent me on my own little personal health and wellness journey, coupled with, I have a lot of family that like my sister's a nurse, I have a cousin that's a nurse, like we're nurses and teachers pretty much in, in our family. And so it yeah. just seemed like a logical next step. So I spend my time right now um, talking a lot about mental health um the and, and how we walk about through our daily daily lives and and what we put into our bodies and how that affects our emotions and our gut health and our brain health and and um just really a, a holistic model of healthcare that really starts um with little everyday practices that really add up to um massive changes in the future so when we talk about chronic illness um those are actual, like, over time, just inflammation building up in the body to create sort of like this dis-ease process. So just let me on this really, this wellness journey that, um, which also integrated into a, a spiritual journey for me um, as well in terms of spiritual health. I think our spiritual health affects our physical health. So um, mm -hmm. that's kind of the Cliff Notes version, I suppose. <laughs> awesome. Okay, and you live in North Carolina? Yeah, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was born and raised here, so this is, which is really odd because Charlotte is kind of a transplant city, so you typically meet people here, and they're like, wait, I've never met anybody from Charlotte. You're a unicorn, and I'm like, yippee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay, so let's just uh, hop into the bulk of the interview and start out by telling me about the faith tradition that you grew up in. Awesome. So um, I grew up uh, in a religious tradition called Jehovah's Witnesses. You may have heard of them. They may <laughs> have uh, knocked on your door at some inopportune time, especially on Saturday mornings. Um, I don't really know what they're up to these days, but I see them on the street corners with their like stands of books and magazines. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses in our neighborhood are um, Spanish speaking, mm -hmm. and we live in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, and so they totally skip our door. It's awesome. They yeah. have us in their system now. It's like they no, do not no. speak Spanish. Yeah. Don't knock so, on that door. <laughs> they are, in terms of community, they are very strategic and like they they reach people with like surgical precision of like, 
all right, this person speaks English, this person speaks French, is there a French congregation? Who, who do we need to like refer their address to? They're very meticulous about like mm -hmm. ministry and trying to reach people because they think that, you know, they have the truth and if they don't share it, then they're going to incur God's displeasure for not uh, making disciples. Um, so that was essentially my childhood was learning how to um, teach people about the Bible and um, kind of bring people to this relationship as I understood it back then with, with Christ. Um, and then there was a heavy moral component to it that I feel like a lot of evangelical people who grew up in evangelical backgrounds will strongly identify with. Um, didn't really have names like purity culture per se, but there was definitely, um, as I've been kind of engaging a conversation with the people about like, oh, I'm trying to like, you know, heal myself from purity culture and the things that the church taught me. Um, there are strong, strong simula similarities, even into the a degree that I would say at some points even stricter than some evangelical churches. Um, yeah. So, and, and I guess, what else do you want to know in, in reference to that? I, I, so I'm is this assuming... something, were your parents uh, in the Jehovah's Witness church before you were born and it was something you were born into? Was it something that uh, your family found later uh, in your life? Or like, what was, what was that like? What was your home life like? And how did that influence your, your spiritual yeah. upbringing? So... As my mom has told me the story um, about how she picked this particular belief system of all the other belief systems she could have chosen is her mom, um, who she uh, describes as an alcoholic, um, came up to her and said, these people have the truth. If you ever follow a religion, I think this is the one that you should follow because this is... Uh, what they're saying checks out. Um, and so at the time, my mom's lifestyle, she didn't really want to make all the changes that she had to do to be a part of that religion. Um, but then I came along and she says that the only thing that she could think about was the story of the flood and how like all the children were killed along with their parents because they didn't heed Noah's warning and, and get in the boat. And so she was like, well, I don't want my kid to die. So I better like, I got to get him on the boat. <laughs> yeah. I got to get him on the boat. And so yeah. I was like, and I, as I, as in my adult life, you know, as a child, I was like, God, that is so sweet and so selfish. <laughs> like, and now I'm just like, Oh dear God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, and I, and I don't say that to be judgmental, but just um, I, I, I'm in a different place now in terms of that belief system. And so um, in some ways, we fell into it sort of out of a fear, out of a naivete, um, out of the simplicity. And, and but all, what kept us there actually was the community. Um, my dad went to prison when I was eight months old. And so... Oh, wow the first few years of my childhood was growing up essentially in a single family home. Mm -hmm. um, my mom kind of sir opened our house as sort of like a halfway house to um, my aunts and cousins and, and who were struggling with addiction, who had 
gone through some really significant trauma in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like my mom was kind of like the center of the family as the single person, Uh, you know, she got married to my dad in prison um, because she thought it was the right thing to do. And she didn't want to have another man in my life. Um, And my grandpa lived with us at the time until he got married when I was about four. So I didn't really know my dad very well, even though we went to go see him in the prison system within the state of North Carolina. Um, I didn't know him really well until I was about five and a half. Um, He got conjugal visits and then my mom got pregnant with my youngest brother. Um, And all of a sudden he was back into our lives and I was like, who is this stranger? Mm. But the irony of it was that he was not a practicing Jehovah's Witness. So that led to a lot of tension in the house um, to the point of where they just did not get along because uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know how much you know about them. They don't celebrate any holidays. Um, They don't celebrate birthdays. So all these things that really were centered around family and community, we separated ourselves from. and And that was kind of what my dad's life was built on this familial structure of support um, that you could just go to and that you worship with and that you were that that this non-judgmental atmosphere and so to step into I mean there are stories that my dad has told me of things that I've said and trying to like convert him um, to what I thought at the time was the truth Mm -hmm. and I just cringe now and I'm like oh my god I said that to you like (laughs) Yeah, so it's amazing how bold we can be in our, especially our adolescence of like, yeah, when you're, when you're put, adolescence is already like a time where you're like, oh, I know, I know everything. So then you put your, in a, in a time or in a tradition where it's like good to, to think, you know, everything and have all the right answers. That's like, there's some brutal 12 and 13 year olds out there in the, evangelical world (laughs) and the sad part is i wasn't even um in like a 12 or 13 year old at that time this was like i was like six or seven oh wow yeah so like the indoctrination into this religion like there's no separate space for kids to go to like a sunday oh interesting everybody learns together there is like books like they encourage bible study during the week and so there's this book like at the time they had this book called my book of bible stories and they were like made for children and like you were like teaching scriptures my brother could like recite all 66 of the books of the bible by the time he was like four oh (laughs) there's definitely like a song there's like a song that uh I know many different traditions, non-denominational Southern Baptist, like lots of traditions I've been a part of. There's a song that you learn where you learn the books of the Bible. So Yeah. Yeah. B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-B-I-
you listen to your parents, I had internalized that belief system as truth. And quite frankly, it all like checked out on paper. Like the the way that they, you know, uh, they're very fundamental when it comes to how you read the Bible and and interpret the Bible. Um, They were very, they have their own version called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, which they say is one of the most accurate translations of the scriptures in terms of the Greek and Hebrew languages. So they were very interested in history, but only history that seemed to validate their positions um, as they thought according to the scriptures. Um, So now it's been really interesting to kind of just look critically at that and begin to deconstruct a lot of uh, what they they believe and realize how they kind of cherry picked certain things mm-hmm. um, and ignored other facts of history. Right. Yeah. Okay. So is your, <clears throat> at the time your mom is practicing Jehovah's witness, your dad is not, is your dad still participating in some kind of faith tradition? Is there, is he going to church on Sundays? Is he, um, or is he on completely a different other page than your mom? And like, tell me a little bit about what that dynamic was like. Yeah. So my dad grew up in a um, black Baptist church and I say black Baptist because it is different from Southern Baptist. We are like, we're African American and Southern Baptist to like, my dad is like 74. So Southern Baptist to black Baptist is like this racial Thing. it is a racial divide so they're like it is they grew up black in the black baptist church um mm-hmm. and they were like so i guess the comparison to that and like charismatic um holy roller like you know just really but there's ingrained in it is the history um of african americans in america built into that church so lots of hymnals that uh came out from you know, slavery times when the slaves were singing in the fields, those things had been carried throughout his tradition. Um, And so there was almost an identity crisis for me because for Jehovah's Witnesses, Mm. they just talked really about oneness and being one human family. Everything was pretty mixed and integrated. And then there was this really beautiful cultural experience that I found completely foreign and quite frankly, scary. The first time that I saw somebody catch the Holy Spirit and I was like, what in the (laughs) world? am I watching? <laughs> like, yeah. This, <laughs> this person's like demon possessed or something. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so, which is really ironic because now I look at that and I'm like, yeah, they're, they're having a moment. They're having an experience and that's really awesome and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so like, the, yeah, this whole cycle has um, changed, but it was so um, drastically different. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I can't, I, ju- I just can't, and I probably am not doing it justice enough to really describe the separation of uh, the ideas of how family should operate between my mom and dad. So in some ways, without they're willing to be that compromise or that give, I think that, that their marriage was doomed from the start, but they didn't get divorced until I was 20. <laughs> wow. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, what took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those, like, we've all been waiting for this. Yeah. Like, time. 
I mean, because for the most of their marriage, they were separated. And so North Carolina has some antiquated mm. laws of like, if you actually file for divorce, you have to be legally separated for like a year before you can file for divorce. Mm-hmm. And, I think Texas has similar. Yeah. Similar laws. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's essentially kind of how I grew up, but um, that's a bit of the dysfunction. And I, um, but there through all the dysfunction, there was never a question in my mind of how deeply loved and cared for I was and mm-hmm. that I had a community that was looking out for me for my best success. Yeah, and that's from the, you're saying from a family perspective or that's from the Pro- Je- Jehovah's Witness church? Yeah, from a family perspective on both sides, my dad's side, my mom's side, from a church perspective, um, church was family for me growing up. Um, and is that on both sides? So did you, did you attend church with your dad as much as you would attend church with your mom? Oh, or was this like, you said absolutely not? Yeah, absolutely not. Like it, like my mother actively sought ways for us not to have to go to church with my dad. And that was always a source of argument because my dad could see right through it. Um, but also just like, the intimate moments that my uh, of my dad's family that they shared, like circle around the dinner table to do prayer, um, like for Jehovah's Witnesses, like standing in a circle and holding hands during prayer was like a pagan practice that like they didn't want to taint their worship. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So oh, that's I mean, really interesting. <laughs> I could we could probably do like two or three podcasts of just about the beliefs <laughs> of Jehovah's Witnesses and how, um, in some ways, like by our definition today extreme they are um but one thing that i've noticed is that if you don't have another context to understand things in these beliefs don't really seem extreme they they are your normal and they are your safety no yeah 100 percent. i always tell people um i don't i don't judge any faith tradition because i grew up literally believing and i'm still like kind of wrestling with this Uh, belief of like God became a man was crucified raised from the dead ascended to heaven like that is a crazy belief on paper Mm -hmm. I I never I never questioned that growing up like it was just it was what it was it was the truth it was 100% so yeah I mean that's a it's an insane belief most religious beliefs are have a little bit of crazy to them right I mean I think you can take advantage of children's imaginations at that age and we look at things with less scrutiny. And so it's kind of like, I, I know I was always hungry to believe in something greater, some sort of magical fantasy world and like God kind of fit right into that, Mm. that, that space for me. And so it was super easy and super exciting because like, for me, like if I'm good and I check off all these boxes, I can be like God and being like God means I get to have superpowers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a really interesting that's an interesting way to articulate that. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it literally just came to me, but I was just thinking, you know, in terms of like, <laughs> Harry, in terms of like Harry Potter, like I loved Harry Potter, which I had to sneak and read when growing up. It was like under my pillow. I was like, I don't uh-huh. know how my mom didn't find it. Um, but like that, when you think of like, and my, my boyfriend is a um, surprise, I'm gay. <laughs> um, <laughs> my boyfriend is actually a kindergarten teacher currently. And so we get to process a lot of like how children see the world. 
And children mm-hmm. are just so moldable in, in how they see the world and they can believe anything because they're always using their imagination. Um, oh, yeah. and, and at some point we kind of like ruin that aspect and we like, oh, well, you now have to start being like believing in like this thing because it's real. Mm-hmm. And what I've come to find as an adult, we really don't even know what's real these days. Um, mm-hmm. and <laughs> realness is defined by our experiences in, in so many right. ways. Um, but yeah, sorry, didn't mean to go off on a tangent. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm here for the tangents. I like it. Um, this is like, we, um, we have a three-year-old and a five-year-old and our five-year-old is just hitting that point. She's like five and a half. She's just hitting that point where she's like, um, I want to go to Disney because I want to meet the Disney princesses in real life. And it's this realization of like, right, you think that they are real. So like you, in your mind, these are not cartoons. These are not made up stories or movies. Like they are real and that is reality. And you want to go meet them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So it's like almost a scary thing. I don't have kids, but when you think about it, like kids' minds are so moldable. And so it, what a great, privilege and responsibility to have to be able to shape a kid into uh, an adult human but also how terrifying because you know (laughs) but but one thing (laughs) I've come to realize is like it doesn't matter what you do like as parents and maybe one day I'll be a parent we're going to screw up our kids somehow some way there's going to be something that they're going to have to deconstruct so we just do the you know do the best that you can and love them absolutely. (laughs) absolutely And so Um, that's what my parents did. They did the best they could and, and, and they loved me and I'm grateful for that. And I know that a lot of people based on their experiences kind of uh, really sit in the trauma and have to have a lot of things to work through. But um, I think love for me carried me a long way. Um, It it has has had to carry me, carry me a long way um, and kind of healing from some of that trauma. Mm Mm-hmm. So tell me, as you come out of, as you come into adolescence and being a teenager, it sounds like your parents were still married, but you kind of had this like understanding that they didn't really get along. Um, There was tension. Um, Were you still in that period of your life? Were you still attending church regularly? Had you at that point kind of bought in 100%, considered yourself a Jehovah's Witness? Like just kind of walk me through what that was like in your uh, adolescence up into your teenage years yeah so adolescence is kind of when I started um adolescence is when it all started coming together and simultaneously falling apart <laughs> um I think I consciously made the decision of like this is what I need to be working towards this is what I need to align my actions and my behavior towards mm-hmm. um in terms of um morality it's also when, um, but from about five, six on into adolescence, I was just aware that I was a bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, I had this attraction to men or to boys, but I thought that it would go away. And so I kept waiting for it to go away and it never went away. And I'm putting together, like, at the same time, I'm being the most, at the t- what, I, what I consider the most devout Christian that I can be. I am, my mom 
um, a little bit more info about that, and they'll probably kill me for divulging so much of our family history, but I think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. My Tell mom, them there's like only five people listening, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, my mom had anger issues growing up. Um, and Well, my mom has anger issues, and so that has been one of her battles in life to really work through. Um, and I think that was the er early formation for me of how trauma can affect a person when it is not dealt with constructively. Um, it was my first, uh, beat my awakening to uh, mental health in the black community and how we view it or, or don't view it, how there's a stigma surrounding it mm -hmm. and how like just with prayer, everything's going to get fixed. Yeah. With, pr with prayer, these emotions that I'm feeling, this attraction that I'm feeling to men is going to fix. With prayer, my mom can control her anger. With prayer, we can be quiet and we can win my dad over into this religious belief system. Mm. Um, and so every Tuesday and Thursday, uh, Tuesday nights were like our small community groups where we would go to somebody's house and uh, read this book and... Uh, read the company scriptures to it and talk about it in a small group of like 10 people. Thursdays is what we call um, big church for we would have like this, what we call a theocratic ministry school where you would learn how to go knock on people's doors. Um, you would get okay. training on how to like engage with potential conversation softeners and objections that people would have as you were trying to teach them about the Bible and you were, tr you would learn how to conduct Bible studies with people. Additionally, you would learn like public speaking, how to craft a presentation. Um, so all like, and this is week after week that I'm kind of being indoctrinated and going through this training of how to be in ministry um, to the point of they didn't encourage while everybody else was thinking about where am I going to go for college? like to me college was the devil and wow like like college is where you go to die spiritually um and so i was going to go to a trade school learn how to build churches and then be a missionary internationally this is how the trajectory of my life was set up based on the things that i was like taught and indoctrinated with versus my dad my dad was very like they really valued education and he was really, it was a big art. It was a massive argument when I told him that I didn't want to go to college. Um, and he just thought like, Oh my gosh, I have no control in raising my kids. And I like, for there was a lot of self-sabotage in my dad because he thought that he was basically a screw up because he hadn't been in our life to be, mm. uh, to, to, to form us. Um, to form our opinions and our belief systems. And now he was kind of having to deal with the consequences of that um, being us going in a different direction and this constant conflict and tension that was in our house mm -hmm. to the point of I've, I've had to, there was one point vividly that I remember getting between my parents as they were like fighting because like my mom had like popped off angrily uh, like the cops were called, like I, she got arrested and had to go to anger management when I was like in third grade. Um, and so just like, I minimize so much of this, like, I think in, when I, in my early twenties, I minimized so much of that trauma. And then I like saw it popping up in life and I was like, oh, I should probably acknowledge these things and deal with these things because it's not necessarily 
normal or what children should have to see or experience or go through. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think that that handicapped me in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's it's um, when you're like when you're healing from trauma. It's it was really helpful for me to learn that I had I never saw um, a healthy marriage or healthy relationship modeled ever. Like even peripheral relationships growing up, like the the one of the only examples I can think of is close friends of mine in high school, like seeing their parents. Um, but if you don't, if you never see it modeled, then it's really hard to, to do it. And it's almost like, you know, my husband and I have found ourselves sitting in marriage counseling going like, okay, we know what not to do now. Right. Like we know that like doing X, Y, Z results in a breakdown, but we don't, like we need to be taught another way yeah. and realizing yeah. that, that there's like, there's no shame in that. Right. Cause it can feel very shameful to be like, Oh my God, how did I get to be 34 years old? And I don't know how to talk about my feelings. Like how did yeah. that happen? <laughs> it's, it's, it's I did so not cultural. get that download. Yeah. yeah. I did not get that download uh, as a kid. And so it's, it's really interesting at, because I feel like my five-year-old sometimes is more emotionally mature uh, or as emotionally mature as I am because we, I have like come into being able to talk about my feelings as I've had children. So it's almost like my, my kids actually teach me how to feel my feelings a lot better than um, I feel like I can even teach them because they just are real and honest with it and have the space to do it. So yeah, that's really it's, um, I'm glad you shared that. Cause I feel like a lot of people re- will resonate with having that. Cause I think sometimes there's this, um, there's this stigma that comes with growing up in a house of where trauma is part of your upbringing that you're somehow broken. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that can keep, that's like, so people don't want to, to be labeled as broken, mm-hmm. which keeps them from healing, which yes. is ironic, right? Cause you're not broken but you do have to learn how to do some things that you just were never taught. Right, right, right. So, so much of deconstruction was that for me, breaking down that notion of being broken. Because I think underneath the big message for me as a gay person that I received as as a child was that I am broken, that Mm -hmm. I have a thorn in the flesh, and that this is my thing, this is to humble me um, and to teach me that I, am com- that I need to be completely reliant on God mm. um, and surrender and give of myself, that I, I am broken and that I am nothing. And so, so much of how we are indoctrinated um, in certain Christian traditions is actually contributing to a victimhood mentality in so many ways. And I, and that might offend some people, but I, I do believe that victimhood is a choice. Um, I think that we are victims, that we do have things that happen to us. But at some point, we have to choose how we're going to move into the future totally. um, with those things that happen to us. Yeah. 
Yeah, I really resonate. There's a quote out there that says like, you don't, um, you can't control what happened to you in your childhood, but you can control what you do with what happened to you in your childhood. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. It's like you, at some point you can continue to just live in a space where you're a victim, but what is that giving to you in your life? And that's probably, I have a feeling that we do, both of us do similar work with people in our, in our coaching of getting people to kind of shift their perspective of like, this can make you stronger if you let it, this can teach you lessons if you let it. Um, And there's also, then you get into that fine line of like, everything happens for a reason. Well, I actually don't believe everything happens for a reason. I think Mm -hmm. that just shitty things happen and then you have to decide what you want to do with it because you can't Mm -hmm. control that shitty things happen. Mm -hmm. There's not necessarily a reason that it happens, but you still get to, to, you have some control over what you decide to do with it. Um, okay. So tell me a little bit more about that time in your life when your faith started to fall apart and, uh, it stopped working for you in the same way that it had when you were younger. Yeah. So I, I guess I'll share this. Um, if I, I struggle to define it as this, but it, we would define it in our culture as I was sexually molested as a kid. Um, I prefer to say I was sexually activated. It was a cousin who was about eight to ten, eight or nine, and I was about six or seven, um, who had similar things done to him um by an adult and was kind of in therapy and so this was kind of like the awakening of like sexual desire and and sexual feeling for me and like once that box is open like once that box is open there's no putting it back Mm -hmm. Um, and especially if you don't have any healthy mechanisms therapy um uh to to process that and then something to build a sexual ethic on top of. Um, So I would really like at some point to kind of talk about in a general sense, um, not here, but in in our culture, how do we, how do we fortify kids when this happens to them, when they're awakened sexually at an early age, because it's not a conversation that I think that we have. And Mm -hmm. it is, and it is something that we now know that is prevalent in, in many church expressions, be it Catholic, be it evangelical, and that people cover it over because we associate sex and shame together and we don't want to talk about these things. Right, yeah. And, and we are doing a disservice to a generation of children because we will not talk about or, or challenge our se- sexual ethic. Mm. Um, and so for that's kind of what where it started for me to fall apart it, it is within my sexuality and com- realizing um trying to suppress what these feelings were internal to me um once i decided that i was going to you know get baptized and be full on jehovah's witness then that meant that i had to follow all the rules and guidelines. And so they have a very strict sexual ethic to the point of if you touch someone inappropriately, that could be grounds for dismissal from the church. Um, and it becomes, uh, so and what they define as touching inappropriately, like heavy petting 
like inappropriate kissing without a chaperone, things of that nature. Um, so they were very strict. Mm. Um, and I found it very difficult to maintain those standards as a 15 year old who was dealing with being haunt, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the desires in dental to youth ethic <laughs> as we call them <laughs> from a scriptural perspective right um and so i got i got baptized when i was 15 and then six months later i lost my virginity and i had to do a confession and so how that works with the jehovah's witnesses is you go before these three men or these three elders in the congregation and it is always three men or three elders um so Congratulations. If you are a woman, it is probably the most awkward moment of your life. <laughs> right. Yeah. Having to confess your sexual quote unquote sins um, in front of three men who then ask these really intrusive and probing questions about what did you do? Um, how did this happen? Did you wear a condom? Did you protect yourself? Like, what were, what did you talk about? Like, and they want to know every little nitty gritty detail. Um, so, and, mm. and they say that the logic is so that they can determine if you're repentant or not. And if this was a willful sin or a sin that you just slipped into. So oh, wow. after that process, so what happens from that, they call it a judicial committee. And from that, you can either be reproved publicly or privately. Uh, privately, you lose all of your privileges in the congregation and you just kind of have to come and be silent, but they don't make an announcement. Publicly, they make an announcement. You get to stay in the congregation. You lose all your privileges. Um, but then a week or so later, they give a talk to the entire congregation about what it is that you did. They don't reference your name, but like everybody knows how the layout of the congregation is. So they people can put two and two together. Um, and then or, or the ultimate, you get excommunicated or disfellowshipped, um, which is you get a, is a total shunning. And so um, I got publicly reproved. This is when I was 15. So basically wow. public shaming, um, losing all my privileges. And then another situation happened when I was 17 and I got publicly reproved for that. And that's when they actually did a talk. And... Um, I really lost privileges and I couldn't be alone with my friends at the time. Like I always mm -hmm. had to have a chaperone regardless of who I was with. Um, and it just became almost like I had a target on my back and they were looking for ways to get me or for like ways that I was maybe like creating an unclean environment in the congregation mm -hmm. um, to the point of, I was, I essentially just loathed myself um, and was, in this really, really deep, um, dark depression. Um, and yeah, I, I remember just, I was kind of like that emo kid and I, I would look at, listen to songs that really just express what I was feeling at that time. And I would write poetry about how lonely it was and how hard it was mm -hmm. to please God and, like, even to the point of, like, oh, it might even be easier to die, but I can't, like, kill myself because, like, oh, spin suicide, God will, God will punish me for committing suicide because that's not respectful to life. So, 
dealing with all these emotions um, internally and not really having a community to process it with. And then I found community within the church of people who were dealing with similar emotions and having to suppress them. And for, and for a while, it felt like a little bit of hope. <laughs> mm. um, until that community was taken away from me. Um, and it was, made, it was turned almost to, to where it, we built this really strong community online of people all over the world who were struggling with, as we call it, same-sex attraction back then. And um, I got to meet some of these people in person. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, thanks. I'm, I'm not alone. I'm not a freak. This is wonderful. Like, there are other people like me. Um, mm-hmm. We can struggle together and please God. And, like, I have found people that get me. And it was just so nice because up to this point, I had had heterosexual men just saying, oh, it's pray the gay away. It's fine. Like, like mm-hmm. yeah, you, you know, all you have to do is stop yourself from thinking about these thoughts and yeah. God will heal you. Um, and I was doing it to my damnedest and it just was not working (laughs) um so yeah they at the last judicial meeting that i was a part of before i got shunned they said that because of me finding and creating this community that i was creating an environment that people could go and commit sin secretly um that i was then creating an environment where the congregation was unclean um, and that I was a danger to the congregation. So they made the decision to shun me. And when they shun you, um, it is supposed to be a total shunning and your family is also supposed to shun you. And so my mom was at that time faced with the decision of does she shun me or does she not shun me? Um, And she wrestled with that and actually ended up getting kicked out herself for her own issues. And so it wasn't an issue for a while. And then she decided to go back maybe about three years ago and um, had to kind of relive some of those old wounds. Mm. Um, But yeah, it just trying to be somebody trying to live a, a, a life that was less than authentic is when it started to, stop when it fell apart and stopped working for me um and i think that any time that we step into a place that we're not living authentically or honestly or we're having to hide portions of who we are or hide our struggles um then anything that we're in a part of that tells us that we have to live less than authentically is going to stop working for us in those moments Mm -hmm. and what was this like um Thank you for sharing that. You just shared a lot of really vulnerable details about your life. So I want to make sure that's acknowledged and honored. And um, I really, I think that uh, a lot of people will resonate with what you just shared. Oh, thank you. Tell me what it was like. Um, I got a really good picture of what it was like for you in your church, in the church environment. Um, During this process from like 15 to 17, what was it like at home? Like, what were your parents' reactions to you having to have this discipline at church, um, having to make these confessions? Um, was it dealt with on a, di- at a, on a different level? 
in your home? Uh, my parent, uh, my parents were super wonderful about it. Um, my dad didn't understand it. Um, so like there was always that beautiful safety with my dad who like, if any, he made it basically all things Jehovah's Witness. So I could go, if I wasn't feeling <laughs> something, I could just go and vent to him. So I have a little privilege in that regard there, <laughs> but my mom was just very like initial my mom my, the typical response from my mom is usually a very strong reaction initially um and then she'll think about it and and kind of rein it in and so that's just what i've come to expect for how my mom reacts to things whether or not that's healthy or good we can discuss that later. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah she was super supportive um, and she was just like, all right, you know what you need to do, you know what you need to work on and let's work on it. And I remember when I came back and told her that I was getting disfellowshipped or excommunicated, um, we both cried and we both laid in bed together the whole day and she just comforted me and mm. she said that we would get through it and she still loved me and that she will always love me and that nothing that I ever did in life would ever stop her from loving me. And so she kind of separated her love for me from what she felt like her responsibility and actions were to God. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what essentially I think a lot of evangelical belief systems try to do uh, with the love the sinner hate the sin notion um and is really difficult so while i think that is born out of a place of honor out mm -hmm. of a place of authentically trying to please god i think it is a false notion um that we love the sinner and hate the sin because when, what happens inevitably is that you hyperfixate on the sin and you can't separate that from the sinner or the mm -hmm. human embodiment of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's, you know, luckily this is all happening as I'm becoming, stepping into adulthood and I'm able to kind of be more flexible with my decisions in terms of, do I stay at home? Um, do I stay in this environment? It, and it's really difficult because it's like, again, I'm feeling love. My mom is doing the actions of love. Um, and almost we have to put on this show when we go into the church space of, yeah, we're not talking to each other. Yeah, we're, um, so it was really difficult to kind of navigate, but you I never- You were allowed to go into the church space, but just no one could talk to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. To the point of, like, oh. I was singing a worship song one day, and the elder came to me and was like, you can't sing here. Nobody can hear you speak. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Okay, and, in my head, I was thinking, like, um, excommunication, like, you're not allowed to go to the church. Like, you're no longer welcome. But this yeah, is, like, no, you can show up. You just don't exist. Right. You can show up. You, you don't exist. Nobody talks to you. Um, the only way for you to get reinstated into the church is if you show up and kind of endure this period of shame and not being able to be talked to. 
Um, yeah. And so, like, you're not, you're not, it doesn't equate to once disfellowship or excommunicated, always disfellowshipped. Um, you can go back. The times that they revoke their invitations for you is when you're actively trying to tell people um, or expose sort of if you believe a different thing and you're trying to expose them for what they believe, then they say you're an apostate and they kind of revolt all, they insulate themselves and get restraining orders and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. Yeah. 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 That's very crazy. Okay. So how old were you when the, um, when you got, when you were being shunned? Um, 20. Okay. And that's around, that's at the same time your parents are getting divorced. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big year. So 20 was the year that I found out that I had another half brother simultaneously as my parents were also telling me that they were getting a divorce. Um, after I was also culti- uh, or dealing with the ramifications of losing my entire community world as I knew it up to that point spiritually. Um, so 20 was like the year that, just, and, and I was also in college studying to be a surgical technologist at that point. So the whole, I, like, I'm in this setting of like that, that is essentially sinful in nature, um, trying to redefine my identity, um, dealing with all these fam- familial issues that like, to the, to the average listener is probably like, oh my God, your family's batshit crazy. <laughs> I mean, aren't we all though? <laughs> no, I think the average listener of this podcast is like, shout out, me too. <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so then you. it sounds like you're like on this um, – you're saying like you're trying to decide if you're going to stay at home. You're kind of at this point where you have to make a decision. Tell me about what, what that was like. Yeah. So I wanted to grow up and I wanted to, I've always had this notion of, I need to prove things to myself that I can do it. So I needed Mm -hmm. to prove that I could take care of myself because I had been so uh, dependent on my mother um, up into that point. And so I found a one-bedroom apartment to rent with a guy that I was working with at the time. Um, it was like 300 bucks a month. And I had just graduated scrub tech school, and I moved out. And I moved out for a year. Um, and just travel. Uh, I, I probably stayed at home for after I got excommunicated for about a year and a half. And then I moved out for a year. And then I decided, uh, I might want to go back to school. In the process of all this, me moving out is when I begin to explore what does it mean to live authentically? What does it mean to be a gay man? Um, And I think at that point, I kind of wrote off. um, If anybody's here familiar with the liturgists and, and how kind of they wrote off their spiritual journeys or became atheists and all. I, I would say that was the time that I wrote off all spiritual anything. Um, and it didn't work for me because I just kept feeling this emptiness and this hunger. Um, so 
I was really involved in the party scene with the gay world, um, which is not necessarily like is portrayed to be um, is very supportive. Um, it is a place to really step into your authentic self. Granted, there is a lot of hurt and trauma within the gay community. And so there is a lot of addiction and a lot of substance abuse. And I did get to see that. Um, but again, I had also grown up with the context of substance abuse with my dad. I had been to AA meetings with him. Um, so it, that wasn't really, but it was just to know that like, oh, I've been kicked out of one community, but here is this other community um, ready to welcome me in, in some mm -hmm. ways. But in other ways, I discovered that the gay community wasn't necessarily really ready to welcome me. Um, for the first time in my life, I began to awaken up to like racial dynamics in communities. Um, it was something that I had read about, but it was nothing that I had never directly experienced. Um, and so all these questions about why can't I get a date or why can't I, um, why doesn't this person like me or why is it easy for our, this friend to like talk to all these people um, kind of began to came up. And it wasn't until I started talking to some other friends who are African-American um, and it was a common lament between all of us. And so simultaneously as like, I'm having the spiritual death, I'm having this social awakening to what's going on in the gay community. Um, like at that time, gay marriage wasn't legal. So like there was a lot of activism in the gay community surrounding um, just being recognized. Um, then I'm learning about the divisions in the gay community as it relates to um, trans people, people of color, um, bisexual people. Um, and so like in my brain, like LGBT is this big united family and like underneath all of that, there's like all these other divisions within mm -hmm. the LGBTQ and queer community that I'm beginning to learn about. So like from 20 to probably 24 was just this massive uh, I traveled the world and I just learned um, and deconstructed in that way. And when I look back on it, that in itself was a very spiritual event, but I didn't see it as such at that time. Mm. So for you at that point, you had just like let go of everything. You were going, moving on to do your own thing and get to know yourself. And it's not until you look back on it that you can see the spirituality behind that process. Yeah, and at the time I was still going to church, um, to the Jehovah's Witnesses Church, uh, to kind of appease my mom um, mm. and string her along. And like, yeah, I'm working on going back. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, oh, shit, I can never go back to this shit. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, so. Yeah. Um, when I finally told her that I wasn't going back, that was quite the uh, conversation. <laughs> And how, and how long ago was that? Uh, it's probably been about three years ago now so that, I, that we had that conversation. And your mom is still a part of the church? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, she went back about three years ago, and I remember the conversation. I wished her well, and I was just like, you know, if this is what makes you happy, all I want in life is for 
you to be happy because mm. and I was at a place in my life where I could say I'm genuinely happy right now yeah. <laughs> but like there's genuine joy in my life and I have a sense of purpose and community so she didn't understand that so for her it was almost like the death watching the death of her son mm. and that was that was what was most painful to me um not what she thought about who I was or who I was becoming but um watching her pain watching her be in pain based on her story and her assumptions is what was painful to me because I'm an empath I don't want to see anybody in pain mm -hmm. and so much of me I'm an Enneagram too and I, I was just about to say you're also a two on the Enneagram so you're yeah. just like I'm feeling your feelings can you please stop feeling those feelings they're hurting me yeah yeah 100 yeah. percent so and, <laughs> and my mom was all, also kind of the catalyst for the reasons why I feel so deeply she taught me how to feel deeply how to be in tune with my emotions and so um just watching her go through that process was ah uh, that was the most painful part of any of it um and just knowing internally what she thought about the trajectory of my life although she didn't verbalize it Mm -hmm. um, just knowing that tension that she was sitting with just was just like, ah, uh, knowing how that, that viewpoint, that worldview was going to cause her to miss so many amazing moments in my mm -hmm. life that I feel like that a mom and son should be able to share um, with each other. Yeah. So let's fast forward to today. Um, because it almost sounds like you've come like uh, not full circle, right? You're not back to like oppressive religion, but you definitely are a very spiritual person. And yeah. so I want to hear more about uh, where you're at today and how, how you got to where you're at today. Yeah. So I think we have a tendency to put deconstruction and reconstruction as two separate processes. And I was talking about this to a friend of mine a few weeks ago and kind of, he brought this idea up, but I think that deconstruction and reconstruction is a process that happens simultaneously. So like mm -hmm. I said, I was able to look back after I made a personal decision to say like, I, there has to be some other way. Um, and look at that now as a spiritual process. Mm -hmm. As I was deconstructing, I was simultaneously reconstructing something new, a new way of being, a new way of thinking. Um, so I felt this longing, this desire, um, and something that I had internalized was uh, in at the book of Matthew in chapter five, where Matthew starts to talk about Jesus is having the Sermon on the Mount and he's talking about like the nine happinesses. And one of those happinesses was happy are those conscious of their spiritual needs. Mm. Um, I, there were parts of the Bible that I really, really loved. And there were parts of the Bible that I really, really hated. <laughs> and so the question became all right i still believe this scripture what do i do with it mm -hmm. what do i do with the bible what do i do with 
how do I hold this? Um, and so I found this church. Um, I kind of did a little bit of church hopping, but a, a gay friend of mine posted um, on Facebook at one point about, oh, we just sung Whitney Houston in church today. It was kind of awesome. <laughs> That sounds amazing. Right? And I was like, huh? Now, I know Whitney Houston. And I know Whitney Houston saying. And I know this church ain't no black church. What in the <laughs> world? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was, they, they had some, he actually said they had some, oh, I want to dance with somebody. So the next week I was like, let me check out this church. I wasn't looking for a church home. I wasn't looking for any place to accept me or affirm me. Um, I just wanted somewhere to be spiritually fed and I didn't know what I wanted that to look like. I was just open and hungry and searching. Mm -hmm. And I say those words very intentionally because um, I'm going to come back to it. Hungry, open and searching. Um, and I went and they were in this relationality series, um, and after that, they went into this series on addiction and used the 12 steps as a model. And mm -hmm. it was just really fascinating for me. Um, because I think for the first couple of weeks, everybody's kind of like, well, I'm not really addicted to alcohol or anything or uh, this nature. But they painted it in this picture of we all have an addiction. We're all addicted to the illusion of control. Um, yeah. And up until this point, I was, I realized I was trying to control everything. I was trying to control how I felt about my past um, instead of just experiencing it. I was trying to control my actions and, and, and my deeds so that, well, if I am wrong about homosexuality, at least my deeds will be so God loves me. So that, like, I do good things and God, like, sees that and will notice that. Um, so, so much about life for me was about control because I had lost so much of control. So much of what happened, I could not, I had no control over. Um, because I remember thinking to myself before I got kicked out, if I just have one more chance, I can do it. I can do it if I just have one more chance to get this right um and now i just i realized that you know we humans are very cyclic in nature and if, if we actually don't address an issue we're we're going to continue to repeat the cycle um so that gave me permission to really examine how i compose my spirituality and i realized a few things i didn't give a shit about what denomination of christianity i belonged to i thought it to be pointless to be able to to label yourself as this particular christian or that particular christian um i didn't believe the bible was inerrant and infallible and i think i had to recognize that I believe that the Bible was valuable. 
and I didn't want to be religious anymore because I felt like religious religion was the hurt of all of the all of human society. Uh, mm. Religion was the cause of war. Religion was the cause of exclusion. Religion was what broke up families. Religion was what we excused his, uh, atrocities in history by. I didn't want religion. I wanted spirituality. I wanted the essence of the divine. Um, and so there was this notion of creating new containers of belief. Um, and, and I think in, in, Christian, in Christian, Christianese terms, like there's a scripture that talks about uh, new, old and new wineskins. And so there was this notion of building new containers with new ideas and getting rid of old containers with old ideas and then keeping containers that actually worked for us. Mm-hmm. And so I began to kind of go through this intentional process of, all right, what's in my containers? What do I need to keep? What do I need to release? The legalism of the scriptures was something, was the first thing to go because in the legalism was all the exclusion for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I couldn't deny that there was some, that there were all, all these other spiritual expressions that really were beautiful in nature and really worked for people and really gave them a sense of fulfillment. Um, and so I began to look at that with a curiosity. Um, a friend of mine recommended that I read The Four Agreements by Don Ruiz Miguel. Miguel Ruiz, I forgot, sorry, I forgot the order of that name. I would say that's a life-changing book for me. Hmm. Um, it reframes really the power that I have to create my own life, my own future, my own destiny. And it also kind of highlighted how I had been living my life up to that point. Um, one of the things that I teach my clients from what I've learned and one of the things that I've been working through myself is this notion of the only thing that we have is the moment, is the right now. So much of religiosity is built on who you are from your past and who you need to be in the future. There's very little focus on being present to the current moment in the now. And so where one of the most beautiful things that I've kind of heard, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it talked about this notion that Christianity provides this really beautiful expression, like um, the way of Jesus, like I am a follower of Jesus because I hate what Christians have done and what Christians do in the name of Jesus. But I am a friend of Jesus. And this is the first time I heard that was, I think on the liturgist podcast when they were interviewing a Buddhist monk who mm-hmm. at, at was a, uh, Christian and then had be, went through this own deconstruction journey. Um, and I think that's really what Jesus was inviting us to. When we look at the example, mm-hmm. Jesus went and he made friends with people and he was in community with people. Um, 
And so he said, I am a friend of Jesus. And so I asked myself, what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? And then one thing that was always instilled in me from an early age of Jehovah's Witnesses was the practice of meditation, but it was meditation with an agenda and not meditation to be open and to listen mm-hmm. to your intuition, to how you, we are wonderfully and beautifully created. Um, and so I reframed how I meditated. And because it was always taught, the process of clearing your mind was a way for, to invite the devil in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I had, that was one thing that I had to let go. Which is um, such an interesting belief. Right? <laughs> like you create space and Satan's going to show up like that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's the message that I got. Um, no, I think that's a message that a lot of people in Christianity get. Yeah. I don't think that's a, I don't think Jehovah's Witnesses have the, the, um, what's it called? Like the, they're not the monopoly. only ones. Yeah. Monopoly on, on that belief of, yeah. Meditation is scary to a lot of people that grow up in super conservative, uh, religious environments. Yeah. So then I kind of went on this basically knowledge thirst and just started consuming everything um and so ways of reframing the christian tradition i think that we often separate ourselves as christians into our little sex and so we miss out on the beautiful pieces that each different tradition has Mm -hmm. so from a catholic perspective um richard rohr was phenomenal and i know for some people they they're like oh i don't understand anything he's saying and <laughs> I, there's a, there's a lot that he's that i don't understand but there's a couple things that stand out to me in, in terms of um the notion of god being with us via our breath um he links that with the jewish with the jewish tradition of how they used to pr- how they pray um, and, and how they understood God's name, uh, Y-H-W-H or Yahweh to be, to sound and pronounce. And he, at one point took listeners on this journey of this realization that through contemplation, through the breath, that God or the divine is always with us. Mm-hmm. Like the, the concept that God's name is actually like breath or god breathed and that we all like with each breath are are associating with the divine Mm -hmm. with like this really beautiful spiritual concept that was a little scary at first and i was like Mm -hmm. um but as i've sat with it um like christians always say god with us right yeah yeah totally what's more with you than the breath that's the if we're living, we're breathing. So God yeah. is with. No, um, I could talk. I could do an entire episode on how ridiculous I think it is that people are scared of Richard Ward's teachings. Like he's teaching things that are so he's actually like wrapping language around this framework that I feel like I was given in growing up as a Christian, but it never really um, had legs. Like it never really had a lot of meat to it. 
And I feel yeah. like he, he, for me, his teachings actually build on, on what I was taught to be true growing up. They just make it, uh, his teachings just sound so much more like Jesus. <laughs> it's mm. like, yeah. 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 But then you want to, you know, I found more, more teachings of Jesus in, in some of the teachings of Buddhism than I was finding in, in Christianity at, at points and parts of, of time. This concept of suffering, that is a very Christian principle, but it is the mm-hmm. foundation of Buddhism <laughs> mm-hmm. that we are here on this earth and being alive is suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and suffering is the things that we are attached to. And once we let go, once we begin to let go of these attachments, that the suffering begins to ease and we step into this enlightenment, this comfort, this rest. That is a deeply Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. Um, and, and so there's this dance almost of, um, I feel like what, what we tend to neglect is that in today's day and age, if you live in America, if the United States of America, you live in the most powerful nation at any point in history of the world, period, today. And to think that that doesn't influence how we worship, how we view Christianity, is absolutely blinding. Mm-hmm. It completely influences our relationship with the divine yeah. because it is rooted in power. And when you think about the Buddha, when you think about Jesus, Jesus was always, especially Jesus, Jesus always railed against the powerful. Mm-hmm. Jesus always railed against powers of institution. And when there was issues of mercy or the law, Jesus always picked mercy. But we, as in, in this most powerful nation, have become so legalistic that we be, begin to pick the law over people, yeah. over human decency and, and dignity. And we're so attached to it, and it is causing us suffering. Mm-hmm. So what would it look like to release the attachment, to release these judgments? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I'm at now. I'm, I'm, I have this passion to build communities that are rooted in authentic, uh, authentic conversations, um, that are rooted in identification of our attachments, the, the stories that we tell ourselves because I could easily tell myself that I'm a victim mm-hmm. that that I am what was done to me but I take away then the ability that I have to walk with people in their hurt and in their pain because mm-hmm. I'm so focused on my hurt and my pain yeah. and I want my hurt and my pain to be special but I've become, I've, I've come to realize that I'm not special. I'm just like everybody else that we're all navigating the same shit (laughs) that we're all struggling financially, that we're all struggling with our relationships, 
that we're all struggling with who it is to be ourselves based on, on the attachments, based on the conclusions that we have about life. And I think if we held them a little bit more loosely, looked a little bit more curiously, were a little bit more open, then we build the communities that we want to see. Yeah. And maybe that's, a, maybe that's a heretical idea, but I think that's what Jesus was here for. And I think that's what Jesus was here to teach us. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't spend a lot of time talking about my blackness or my gayness. While those things are important and they matter, my blackness and gayness are, are just pieces of who I am in a world of where we're all in this together and we're mm-hmm. all suffering in this together. Mm. Yeah, okay, so I want to ask you what it's looked like in your life for you to, like what attachments have you had to let go of and how has that been transformational for you? Mm. The biggest attachment that I've had to let go of for myself, and let me preface that also by saying that this is a constant work for me, and I think this is a constant work for anybody. Um, The attachment to satisfying imposed expectations, Uh, the, the attachment of what people think about me, um, the attachment to performance, hmm. um, to, and so what that, I guess to to articulate a bit more clearly on that is, I think that we live by default um, when when we get validated by somebody or some group. When they say, you're doing a good job, keep doing that. There's this dopamine hit that happens in the brain. There's all these hormones and endorphins that are released. And it creates this feeling of safety, love, and acceptance. When you are met with potential rejection, there's a, 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 a feeling of fear. So much of my life has been trying to avoid rejection Mm -hmm. and so my work has really been sitting and letting go of what people think about me because it doesn't matter what people think about me does not dictate the work that i am able to do only i do um and what has that freed you up to do letting go of that attachment Letting go of the need for people to like you has freed you up to. Um, It just freed me up to be. Mm. Um, And I know that sounds very simple and also very like woo-woo and ethereal, but we spend so much time trying to make other people happy. To our detriment, to to to, we spend so much time on focus on others that we forget to attend to our actual needs for ourselves and the messages that our bodies are sending to us. I go see a plant spirit medicine practitioner who's like my therapist, um, and she uses Chinese uh, Ayurveda medicine and and the Chinese five elements. 
And so on that, like joy is represented by fire and anger is represented by wood. And all these emotions are kind of listed out on this cycle or circle. Mm-hmm. And at the top is joy. And when you think about a circle, it goes constant. It goes always around. And so there's always in this cycle, this return to joy, but you have to go through all the other emotions. Mm-hmm. We're really adept at ignoring our own personal emotions. And mm-hmm. I believe that emotions are simply energy and motion within the body. They are messages uh, in our body that we need to pay attention to. They are our intuitions. Um, and so to reframe some of that some of that of how we're taught what emotions are and what they do for us they are messages and they're they're meant mm-hmm. to be pay, paid attention to and and to sit with and to process and we're told not to do that don't be emotional be mm-hmm. strong um yeah and, and i think that is completely counter to what it means to be human mm-hmm. to, to be in community with um, one another and so Sitting with the expectation of why do I feel this way? Why do I, this person said X, Y, Z. Why did it stir this emotion up in me? What if I don't satisfy this expectation? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? And when I begin to play out those scenarios time and time again, I realized the limits that I was placing on myself to live my most authentic life. Mm-hmm. Because instead of being present and just being, I was tending to what I thought was the needs of others. And newsflash, people didn't need me. People needed to be with themselves, mm-hmm. to, to work out for themselves their own trauma, their own belief systems about the world. And my place in that was sharing what I was experiencing in those moments. Mm-hmm. and how I was navigating. That's where authenticity and vulnerability came in um, and it's enabled me to speak freely about my experiences uh, today um, to so many, to be able to facilitate really difficult conversations with people, um, especially people who experience religious trauma or relationship trauma. Um, and uh, even in the nursing world is enabled me to be a better nurse with my patients because I'm able to just see the divine in the person in front of me in the bed who's helpless, who I have to feed. Um, And I find it an honor to lift a fork or a spoon to their mouth to sustain and nourish them. There's something really intimate about these moments. And so we're so caught up in keeping up with the Joneses. We're so caught up and what is this person going to think that we get, we miss all these really beautiful and intimate moments just to be with each other and mm-hmm. fortify each other and encourage each other. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, okay. I have a feeling you and I could do like 10 episodes. We could like have our own podcast where we just talk about this stuff, but I have to wrap it up uh, for this time so I want to ask you, um, I don't know if we, if we mentioned in, in the recording or not, but Tommy is a moderator for the liturgist community, which is kind of bred out of the liturgist podcast. So I want to give you just like a, a one minute chance to talk about what that community has meant to you, um, how people can find it. 
And um, yeah, just tell us about the Liturgist community. So the Liturgist community on Facebook um, was started out, it started out as a Reddit group. Um, and it's basically essentially some uh, fans of the Liturgist podcast just kind of created this online community um, because what they recognized, I felt like, was that there was lack of this authentic community um, in a lot of church spaces, especially rural communities. Um, and it just began to grow. So I joined on back in August, or no, October, as a moderate. Uh, and then shortly after, they were looking for a bit more diversity in the voices uh, because it seemed to be quite white-centered. Um, and, and we want it to be as inclusive as possible. Um, so it kind of raised my hand to volunteer and I was not really ready for the connections and community. Mm. So people with such similar stories, you know, if you're listening to this and you feel alone in your story, you're not alone. There, there's so many avenues. And what we wanted to do was create a space for people to come together who had similar stories and was wrestling with similar questions and things and be in community with each other and find peace and healing. Um, and so out of that, there has, there's a number of subgroups and, and, and local city groups. There's a Charlotte liturgist community. There's a LA liturgist community. There's a singles liturgist community. There's a LGBTQ. We're about to launch a um, black indigenous people of color liturgist community. Um, and to just, so what we're trying to do is uh, establish more micro communities. Um, There's a parenting the, one as well, right? Yes. Someone just told me yeah, about so this. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, I need this in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so the, the big, I call it big church, but big church is a little bit overwhelming because there's about 7,500 people as of this, uh, as we're talking here in it. Um, but really what we want to do is filter people through big church and then into a smaller communities where they can really connect with people locally or close by uh, or regionally. Um, yeah. And actually right now I have a friend from LA who's staying with us for the week who I actually met from the liturgist uh, uh, community. We're going to have a retreat in Chicago and oh, awesome. in August. And then the moderators and admins are getting together also in August. And so we're just trying to see how do we grow this and how do we provide more in-person opportunities along as like, you know, Science Mike, Michael Gunger and Mike Mahar, they just started this tabs and wafer tour to um, really be with people. And, and so we don't know what it's going to shape or if it'll have to rebrand itself at some point, but we just, you know, the liturgist really is such a, a, a landing pad for so many people doing deconstruction. Totally. Um, and I'm just so thankful for that community. Um, and we all just volunteer out of our free time and the goodness of our heart because we believe in this and we believe that it'll create a better world, a more healthier world, a, a safer world, a more knowledgeable world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so please join us in, in that. And, and if there's yeah. any, if you, any suggestions on how to grow grow communities we welcome that input and we just we're we're just thankful for the work that we get to do and honestly we're in awe and so i, I think you interviewed Lindsay a few weeks I did. ago yeah yeah i did 
yeah so uh, she might have more to say have had more to say on that so go back and listen to her interview and she's amazing and just it's just a group of wonderful people who are just passionate about creating connections with each other um and, and, and i just providing- want to throw in like as someone who's just a part of the community like as a um, almost like a spectator like i don't spend a lot of time on facebook but i i just want to say that you guys do a really really good job of moderating like there to have that many people in a group and still to be able to have conversations that are kind of controversial like it would be really easy to say like that's offensive we don't post stuff like that here and instead you guys say that's an interesting perspective tell me more about why you think that and i think that that's like a really unique you guys um take up a really unique space in the facebook group world for me anyway where there are, it's a safe place to have very uncomfortable conversations as people are coming from this, like um, coming from all different backgrounds, but specifically like very white, conservative, male-centered spaces into a place where they have a lot of questions. Um, I think that that can be a very scary place for people to be. And I feel like the liturgist community provides this soft landing for people without letting them off the hook, right? With still holding them accountable for, for beliefs um, that aren't necessarily um, healthy or safe for all people, uh, but without shaming people for those beliefs. So it's really difficult to hold all that uh, intention. Um, So thank you for the compliment. And there's always areas and improvement on our end as moderator team and those are conversations that we take seriously um we are always trying to ask the question how do we be this a a more safer and welcoming space and kind of the thing that we settled on is we can't provide a safe space for people but we can provide a brave space for people a space where people are pushed in a space where people learn in a and, but also a, a community of support. Um, and so each group, subgroup might look a little different to provide that avenue and opportunity for safety. So we would just want to create something where everybody has opportunity to connect or plug in and feel part of something and, and see that it doesn't have to be this exclusive way. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. this way that is painful and, 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 and restrictive but there's so much freedom and so much love in the world and all we need to do is just be participate and Mm -hmm. and show up and we can and we can take hold of it too right yeah okay so what resources would you recommend for people who are like at the beginning of the process of deconstructing their faith or even like i loved what you said i didn't get a chance to uh, comments on it while you were saying it, but the, this idea of like the fact that we're deconstructing and reconstructing at the same time that resonates with me so deeply because it is like that sorting, right. Of like kind of seeing what, what we're going to keep, what we're going to take forward, but and what we want to add on. So what resources you, you named the four agreements. Mm-hmm. Are there any other books or podcasts or other resources that you would recommend to people who are in this process? Yeah, so maybe I'll I'll do it um, Christian based and then spiritual based. So um, if you want to stay within the Christian realm, if that's your comfort zone, 
Um, Rob Bell has helped a lot of people. Obviously, Richard Rohr, Pete Inns. Uh, those are uh, the liturgist podcast. Those are some of your basics. But I would also say I want to highlight a few persons of color who are in sort of that same deconstructed space. So your um, uh, Austin Channing Brown, she talks about, um, she has a book called I'm Still Here, Black, Digni Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Um, and there's a lot of really spiritual overtones and a lot of, um, she exposes a lot of how white spaces tend to welcome black voices or voices of color in, in spaces in a very experiential way. Um, so if you're looking for something that's more academic, um, that's not gonna satisfy that fancy, but it is a book based on her personal experiences. I can't uh, emphasize that enough. Um, there, uh, so I, I feel like once you begin to, so I would say start out with the Rot Bells, the, the PNs is the, 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 um, the, for the theological doctrine piece of it uh, to challenge mm -hmm. that notion. But then in reference, I think there's a heavy social component to faith. And I think the liturgists begin to touch on that social component. And then after that, I think you people should tend to reach out and try to find voices that they aren't hearing. So ask themselves like, have I ever heard a person of color preach? Have I ever heard a woman of color preach and express mm -hmm. her faith? Um, what could that teach me? Mm -hmm. So the resources are unlimited. You don't need me to provide you resources, but be bold, be open, be humble, be ready to learn. And this is a process that's going to take you through the rest of your life. I will always be deconstructing and reconstructing something yeah. about my faith and my belief. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you, this is the last question. If you could do anything in the world and money wasn't an issue, what would you do? Um, AZ. I will travel the world, give people inspirational speeches um, whenever somebody was feeling lonely and just needed to know that they weren't alone. Like I would use my resources to go and set them up with communities. And so we're trying to actually do that and create that via online spaces so that that then filters into the physical spaces um, while also being conscious of everybody's financial uh, situations um, because we know that money is an issue. But so in some ways I'm doing it and if I could do it and money wasn't a factor, um, it would be like building communities in online spaces and in physical spaces um, and showing like, no, you don't have to be in a church to experience God. We experience God mm -hmm together with each other. Awesome. All right, Tommy, thank you so much for uh, doing this interview and for sharing your story. And um, I can't wait to go back and listen to it again so that I can take some notes. And um, you can find Tommy in the liturgist community. Where can people find you on Instagram or your other social media? Yeah. Places? So, I'm really bad about blending my personal and professional life. Again, um, I'm really internalizing that live authentically life. So um, look me up on Facebook, Tommy Allgood. 
is what I am on Facebook. Um, if you're on Instagram, Tommy All Good RN. Um, I also have Tommy All Good Coaching uh, for, as my coaching site for Instagram. And then I have a website, www.tommyallgood.com. Shoot me a message. Uh, let's set up an appointment to talk. I love to talk and just chat with people and bounce ideas off of people. Um, my inbox and my life is always open to you all. So, Awesome. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you. Wasn't that conversation so good? What did I tell you guys? Like, I could probably have 500 more conversations with Tommy about this subject. I just love listening to him talk about his experience. And it's so rare that you find someone who models the behavior that they talk about, right? Like practicing what they preach. I feel like Tommy does an amazing job at practicing acceptance and self-awareness and a non-judgmental observation of what is, right? I just hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. As always, huge thank you to Loud Harp for providing the music that you hear in the background. You can always check them out on Instagram at loudheart and please support their uh, music, buy their music, give them your money for what they do because the music that they are putting out is just incredible. I am looking forward to putting together the rest of these episodes for you guys and I look forward to connecting with y'all. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye.